Welcome to Future Work, the podcast where we bring you practical tips and insights on the ever-evolving landscape of work. Join us as we explore the trends, innovations, and challenges shaping the way we work today and tomorrow. Okay, welcome everyone to a new episode of Future Work. Today we're joined by Christy Hoffman, a workplace experience strategist who I found online on social media under Corporate Christy. Christy, welcome and tell us more about this secret identity. Thank you. Yes, Corporate Christy is a persona I use to spoof a day in a very ineffective, disengaged work life. And I use it to do market research on TikTok. It's me having fun and just poking at what it really is like sometimes and past experience at other companies of poor management, lack of communication, burnout. And what's really great is I I get these awesome comments from real employees who are like, yeah, let me take it a level deeper and tell you more about why this is hard. I'm like, thank you, because I'm going to go put this into practice and preach to whoever wants to listen how to turn your company into a great place to work by not doing this. Amazing. And I'm sure it really resonates. And I see a lot of views and a lot of comments, a lot of engagement on these posts. We'll make sure to include the link in the show notes so that everyone can follow Corporate Christie. And you just mentioned, you know, this is something that you then take those insights and you turn them into action for creating better organizations. I think you would call that people first organizations. We saw some research recently from Stanford professor Nick Bloom, one of the leading authorities on work from home. Um, And he said that, you know, most companies, even if they're not fully hybrid or fully remote, will at least have some people that are in hybrid roles. So the world of work is changing very quickly. And so therefore what it means to run an organization is changing very quickly. So can you share a little bit about this idea of designing an organization to be people first and what that means? Yes. So people first is something companies love to say they are, but very few actually are. It doesn't work anymore to focus on or be a revenue first company. Let me describe what you don't want to be and what most companies are. They think they're people first, but they're not. Revenue first companies focus on metrics and hitting your goals and go, go, go and We don't care if people are burned out. We don't send surveys. HR is understaffed. People ops teams don't exist. And employees get fed up. You can hit your goals as a company for a couple quarters and impress your board members. But if you're not focused on the people, that's not a sustainable long-term growth plan. A true people-first company is just that. But it's hard to do. When you put your people first, a lot of CEOs and executive teams are like, we can't. We have to hit our sales and our growth targets. We have to have a differentiated product that's best in class and our customers have to be super happy. And it's like, yeah, guess what? They will be if your people are happy. When you focus on your employee experience, which we can get into, and really dial in what it's like to work at your company and make sure your employees' basic needs are being met, that's an engaged workforce. And that lends itself to a better product better customer relations, and ultimately more revenue. And you also fixed your employee experience and you've got an engaged workforce. So it's like laying the foundation properly so that your company really can grow and evolve in the way you imagine. But you have to think through what are people going through? What is it like to work at our company? So people first is harder than it sounds, but it, it is the solution to getting that long-term growth plan going, like getting it all to unfold in a way that you always imagined. You have to put the people first so that they do their best work on behalf of your organization. 
it sounds so logical. And to your point, maybe companies and people think about this as two different ways to go about running a company. You're either revenue for first or you're people first, but you can be people first and still generate revenue. I think that's your point, right? Yes, exactly. It's the secret sauce, but it's actually pretty obvious. It sounds pretty obvious. At the end of the day, companies are just a group of people doing something together. So focusing on those people and, and building an experience that engages them, then in turn becomes a strong company and can generate the outcome. And you mentioned burnout, you mentioned, you know, companies that are really focused on the revenue and on the business, they may risk that people burn out, that they're doing good work in the short term, but it doesn't really work for the long term. What are some other benefits of taking that people first approach? And then I think we want to hear, how do you then do it? Where do you start? Sure. So the benefits of being a people first organization is just that your people are more collaborative, they're more productive. It's a psychologically safe environment, which means you don't feel stupid when you ask questions because there's been management training to have managers who raise healthy teams to ask hard questions, to ask if you're confused, then everyone else might be confused. It's a better environment that lends itself to more revenue. It's the benefits are all of them. Happier employees, more productivity, increased collaboration. I mean, studies show this. An engaged workforce goes above and beyond to optimize. Teams aren't arguing over ego and uh, I need to be right. They're like, we want to win as a company. We want to do right by the company. Let's get to the best answer. Those are the companies. I've had two companies where this has happened to me, where you're just so enjoying the experience that time kind of flies by. And I've been lucky and fortunate to experience this. This is why I believe in what I've been saying and what I've been preaching. It works. And employees want to do right and they want to excel and those are the companies that are differentiated from their competition. And again, it sounds very logical, this idea of if you take care of your people, they will take care of you. We do better work when we're feeling well and when we're not burned out. So if a company is not quite there yet in terms of maybe saying that they're people first or even hearing about this for the first time, where to start? Yes. So the best place to start if you know you have a disengaged workforce, I mean, you know, it's a general apathy. There's not a lot of excitement. People just kind of show up and do their job. So if that's you and you're like, I don't even know where to begin, what do I do? There's an engagement survey template that I can include in, in the comments or however we want to distribute this. I will give you access. You need to send an engagement survey. And if you're new to this, it's really important not to just make up your own questions because that's like if you've never baked a cake before, if I tell you to bake a cake from scratch, it's probably not going to be very good and it's going to be missing ingredients and it might have really mystery ingredients. So a survey is not something you want to mess around with and just kind of guess, especially if an HR person or people ops is burned out, they might just throw out a survey. You have to ask the right questions, which Gallup has a great framework of 12 questions that very directly map to the different parts of the employee experience, which are the little touch points of an employee working at your company every day from having the right tools and systems in place all the way through making sure that they feel like they have opportunities at work to learn and grow. So you don't want to kind of just jump in and pepper your employees with 50 questions and they're kind of redundant, they're worded weird. Making a survey is harder than it sounds. And there are people that you can reach out to like me who can walk you through what questions to ask. But Start with an engagement survey and let your people tell you what is wrong and what's causing them to be disengaged. 
But to backtrack a little bit, you really need to lay a foundation of trust. If you haven't been surveying, you don't just send out a survey because employees are going to get scared. There's a lot of survey PTSD in the research I've done. I can link out to an old webinar I did on demand where on TikTok was making some survey videos and employees said a couple of reasons why they don't want to take surveys. They're afraid they're going to get fired. They're afraid nothing's going to happen with their answers. So what's the point? And they're afraid that it's just going to create this kind of witch hunt for someone else. So they're afraid to be honest. And there's just there's not a lot of safety and trust built. So it's important to kick off with your company if this is new or in the past. If surveys, you haven't done anything with the answers, it's okay. Other companies have done that too. It's overwhelming when you get the data. But level set with everyone. Make the employees part of this and say, hey, we really want to focus on the employee experience this year. We want to be a people first company. And that means we're going to send out this survey and we want you to feel safe to take it. If you don't, we understand. But truly know that we're going to do things with these answers that are going to make your workday better. And we want to improve what it's like to be working at our company. So please take this survey. So you have to build trust before you send out that survey. Don't do it blindly and don't make up the questions. So you you have to express clear intention around what is this survey supposed to accomplish, right? So we want to change, we want to be better, and therefore we want to hear from you because you know more than anyone what the experience is actually like and where the biggest opportunities are to improve. And that will combat some of the challenges that I see often where a couple of very well-intended HR people lock themselves up in a room and start brainstorming solutions to improve engagement which typically leads to things like a happy hour or a yoga webinar. Yes. Anywho, we, we've done those too. So, <laughs> but okay, we can be much more intentional and we can really engage employees in that process. Yes. Then obviously one of the key challenges that we're going to run into is if people spend the time and effort to answer even just those 12 questions from Gallup that you mentioned, we then have a lot of data. We have a lot of insights. What then if nothing happens with that? And you know what? It happens a lot. So I don't want people to hear this and think, gosh, I've done this. I'm guilty of this. I'm not going to say it's okay. It's not okay. But you're not alone. It is really hard to know what to do with the data, which is why it's really important for everyone to Google the employee hierarchy of needs. Guess what? I'm probably going to be the first blog post that shows up because I can't stop talking about it. But when you get the data, the dragnet of data, and it's a dumpster fire, and everyone's upset, and they have a lot to say about what it's like to work your company, it's like, ah, I don't know what to do. Everyone's upset, so I'm just going to do nothing. It's like fight or flight or freeze. You're just frozen. So, But it's okay because you start at the bottom of the hierarchy of needs and you need to have the right tools and systems in place before you work on opportunities for people to at work to learn and grow. That's why you can't thrive with your friendships and your personal growth if you don't have a house and food and water and shelter. So there is a framework by which you can say, okay, there's a lot wrong. We will get to most of this later. Right now, it looks like people don't feel like they have the right materials and equipment they need to do their work right. So we're going to start there. And then you send a pulse survey, which is a different survey that's shorter. You build more trust with employees and say, hey, you said that in the survey, like, thank you for giving us your feedback. We want to know more. Tell us what we can do specifically. And you say, what materials and equipment? And you ask them to give you more qualitative answers. And you use the power of your managers. Managers should be having one-on-ones. Hey, in the last engagement survey, you know, I'm an extension of HR and people ops. Can you tell me more so that I can go tell them they can fix this faster? Tell me what process is broken. What tool are you missing? What equipment isn't working for you so that I can be an advocate for you? There's a lot of healing that has to be done in the workplace 
with relationships and hierarchy and feeling comfortable with your boss and feeling comfortable telling HR. That's why people don't take surveys. But when they do, if they do, you're lucky, even though the feedback is negative and it's like, oh, this is so heavy. Congratulations, because you have a workforce that's at least telling you what's wrong. Take like do the next best thing, like just do one thing, pick one thing from that survey that's at the bottom of the hierarchy and take care of one thing at a time. And it's always hard to hear bad news. It's always hard to hear tough feedback. But at the end of the day, you know, without data, without insights, without that feedback, there's no way for you to improve your employee experience. And that's really the place to start. Yes. One of the things that you mentioned, besides having the right tools and having the right resources that you mentioned a few times is around safety. Um, And this is definitely a topic that I'm very glad to see being spoken about more now. Uh, Safety, psychological safety, trust, feeling that you can reach out to people. It seems to be coming up more now. Can you share a little bit about what that is and also how do you actually build it? Yes. So psychological safety is an environment by which the leader of a group has made it very clear that this is a safe space to ask hard questions, to challenge and to have healthy debate because everybody's just trying to get to the right answer. Nobody's trying to win. And that takes a lot of work from the manager to have a very hefty, well-developed set of soft skills. Scott Asai is someone who's a very great follow on LinkedIn. He is a management leadership coach. He leads workshops for managers to learn their soft skills like emotional availability, communication, active listening. A good manager is a coach. The coach doesn't get in the game. The coach is leading a group of really talented individuals to win together. So psychological safety is not a new concept, but in the workplace. Personally, as a millennial, I've just seen a huge swing in general, what it's like to work. There was no talking about psychological safety. You listened to your boss and you didn't question, otherwise you got in trouble. I even find myself hesitant. Sometimes I'm like, there's a lot of PTSD with like getting people to really trust that, no, I just want us to do our best work. This is okay. It's good for a manager to read a book, Radical Candor, and then maybe even have the team read Radical Candor, which is a framework by which to have healthy debate and to not be obnoxiously aggressive, but not be ruinously empathetic to like, whatever you guys say, I just don't like conflict. There's a lot of soft skill development for the team that they can learn from their manager who has really well-developed soft skills to create an environment that's psychologically safe. And that is obviously then a really big challenge because what we see in the reality is that managers typically have their own work to do. They typically have their own shit to deal with. They are busy. They are already stretched themselves. And so how do they then create the time and the space to get into a coaching mindset or to even learn that and to develop their soft skills. Right. It seems that as organizations, we're just asking more and more of line managers, of middle managers in terms of their own output, in terms of the team's output. Now they have to become a coach. It's it's a lot of pressure. Yes. And I think what you just described where the manager is doing a lot of the work still, that's a revenue first company. A people-first company understands that the manager is going to be spent. It's a completely different skill set. They may have been the highest performer and have a ton of experience in the role of the team they're they're managing, sales, product, you know, the dev team, marketing, whatever it is. That manager actually has to be comfortable and there has to be a conversation. Hey, you're actually going to be like a therapist and a coach like 80% of the time. 
10 to 20% of the time you're looking at analytics and yeah, you jump in and you do stuff and you get in spreadsheets and you look at the numbers. But really, a people first company is comfortable with the headcount of like, this person is just in charge of taking care of the people in their care. And maybe that 80% was a little aggressive. That's like the ideal situation where they are just dialed into removing roadblocks, having one-on-ones and making sure their people's needs are met. Maybe if you have 10 people on your team, which I think is the threshold to which a manager can really take care of that many people emotionally, their needs are all different, each person. But a team that's maybe four people, you could say that that manager should really not be spending any more than 50% of their time on projects because you can't do both well. Something's going to suffer. Would you rather have the manager suffer burnout or the entire team suffer like not having a manager who's dialed into them and paying attention to them or both? I mean, it's just all of it's a big recipe of bad down the road. It's not sustainable. Everyone's going to be having a bad time. So companies need to be giving permission to managers and training them. You know what? If you feel yourself getting pulled into the projects and trying to be the rock star, you're not. The coach doesn't get in the game. The coach will shoot some free throws and show the team they've still got it at practice. They'll sink a three and you're like, oh, I forgot you played at a big school. And they're like, yeah, but I'm, you know, now I'm here to to run the team. Let's go. So you don't see the coach get in the game. The manager should not be doing a lot of work on behalf of the team. They need to be taking care of them. Hmm. So that's really function then of organizational design and philosophy to say, if we're really about the people and we want to get the most out of every person and therefore also make it a very enticing experience for individual people, we need to make sure that they then have resources in the form of a manager to coach them and to support them and to take the time to answer even their smallest questions. Because otherwise, the manager is going to spend their time on working and is going to do this sort of like as a side gig. They're going to be managing a couple of people and they're never going to be able to achieve that result. I think that makes a lot of sense. So that keyword of permission, I think is really interesting. Do companies really give managers permission to just take time to be a manager? And do they give them the bandwidth, right? Do they clear up time? Do they free up time? Do they lower the outputs of that manager themselves or the expected outcomes of the manager themselves to make time for being a good manager? A really interesting theme that also came up in in some of the things you were just saying is around engagement and experience, which I think for a lot of people, they sometimes get used interchangeably. Employee engagement, employee experience. Is there actually a difference between the two and which one fuels which? Yes, I love this question because it's a really important distinction if you really are going to drive engagement because they're not the same, but one leads to the other. So employee experience is an input employee engagement is an output. Yes, you drive engagement, but how you do it is by optimizing and finding the broken and missing moments of your employee experience so that your employees will be more engaged. Engagement is a spectrum that's ever constantly in flux. That's why surveys are important to always be getting a feedback loop from your employees so that you know what to work on next and optimize against the employee hierarchy of needs. You'll see people on LinkedIn we want to deliver a better EX. We want to drive engagement. Most people actually don't know that it's very nuanced work. And that's why you get Grubhub gift cards and, you know, silly hat day and cat day and all these things. And you're like, why are people disengaged? Well, because you're throwing so many band-aids on the solution, you need to do open heart surgery on something that is very broken. Your onboarding is terrible. And employees are starting out in a disengagement hole because they bonded over your bad onboarding. 
And now you're trying to, you know, pull them out of that and be like, go perform. And they're like, I made a terrible decision by joining this company. So employee experience is every little moment from the moment they apply to the moment they depart your company. Employee engagement is an, a spectrum, a measurement of sentiment across the group that is always in flux. Do managers design that employee experience thinking through for each team member, what is it going to be like to show up here at work every day? How do I make sure that they develop? How do I make sure that they feel that they're progressing? How do I avoid them running into the trap of burnout or overwork? Is that really something that the manager has to design or is there also something centrally that the organization can support those managers with? That's a great question. That's the first time I've been asked that. And that's a good, another distinction to make is that HR and people, well, really people ops teams are in charge of the employee experience. And that's why it's important for a people ops, which stands for people operations. If I've used that too many times and haven't defined it, you'll also see it defined as POPs. It's an acronym, people operations. They are supposed to be so dialed in and properly staffed to be looking at engagement survey results. HR is actually the other side of the business. There are policies in black and white and, and, and like, here's the next hiring and recruiting. And then you hand over the onboarding and the qualitative stuff and career mapping and all the touchy-feely emotional side to the people ops team. They're two halves of a whole. So it's important to define those two roles too. So the manager is not in charge of the employee experience itself, but they do play a huge role because Gallup says that 70% of the employee experience is the relationship between the employee and their manager. That's that qualitative, psychologically safe, this person cares about me as a person and wants to see me succeed and I feel safe with them to tell them my ideas and my problems and my roadblocks and they're not going to bite my head off and make me feel bad or ignore me or delete the, or cancel the meeting. So it is good for a manager to understand the impact they have on the employee experience, but they're not necessarily on the hook to make sure that that it's dialed in. That's on the people operations side. And oftentimes at companies, HR is the last to get headcount. People ops is the last to get headcount and budget. And they're just struggling because they own so many other parts of the business like payroll, compliance, benefits, policies, planning the company holiday party, recruiting, onboarding, mm. employee growth, like things that that side of the business works on. It's insane. And they're also on the hook to drive engagement. It's impossible. Those teams really need to be staffed. Understaffed, under-resourced. It's a tough team to be in. Yep. And again, if it was done in a more structural way and if there's more tools and automation ai and data that was used to deliver that then maybe it wasn't that much work and it wasn't so much manual work and maybe that team wouldn't be so so overwhelmed but i really like your point here that it's really there are things that can be done centrally that then make all those managers better managers and you mentioned specifically one-on-one -on -one. this is another thing that comes up a lot probably many challenges that employees face and that organizations therefore face in the bigger picture can be solved just by having frequent conversations. But two things that I see happening with one-on-ones, one is managers don't know how to run good one-on-ones. They just lack the training, they lack a good framework, they lack a good one-on-one -on -one agenda even. And then two, employees are not really, maybe going back to that topic of psychological safety, they don't really feel safe to actually bring their biggest problems to the manager or their biggest challenges or even just small things because they feel silly to ask because they want to make a good impression. They don't want to let their manager know that they don't know what they're doing or they are unsure about what they should be focusing on, etc. Are there some things that managers could do to deliver better one-on-ones and to make those conversations much more productive and impactful? 
Yes. And here's actually what a bad one-on-one usually is. This is the typical one-on-one. There's no agenda. Nobody knows what to say. Managers don't have time because like we already said, they're doing too much work instead of focusing on the people. And employees get anxious when they don't know what to expect. You go into a one-on-one and there's no agenda or any pre-work, you feel like you're walking into a, a dark room and you're about to get punched in the face because that's what people's experience has been. So, but there is, the good news is there's a great formula to follow. This is my one-on-one recipe. And there's tools that can help you do this where managers and employees are nudged to be reminded to do pre-work. Pingboard does this. So if you have a scheduled one-on-one with your manager, a tool can nudge you and be like, hey, what's been on your mind that you probably want to talk about in this meeting? Whether it's a roadblock or a win or something you want to share, both people do this. So it's good to share going into it. Generally, I want to talk about these things so that the employee is like, ah, okay, I'm not in trouble. I mean, there's just a lot of workplace trauma that people are still recovering from. We've all worked for bad companies. So pre-work, then you start with an icebreaker. Yes, it's silly. Asking a question like, if you were famous, what would you be famous for? The point is not to be intentionally silly. The point is to learn more about the person. That's actually a great way to crack Like, who are you that's different than the other people on the team? Because the answers are wildly different. And if a manager is intentional about this and has fun with it, they can ask the same icebreaker to each person on the week or the month or however often you're having one-on-ones. I think it should be bi-weekly. You learn, you get wildly different answers. And that person has fun letting their guard down, showing you who they are as a person outside of work. After the icebreaker, you do goal check-in hey, you're on track for this goal, but this one looks like it's behind. How can I help? Oh my gosh, how supportive does that feel? You talk about that for a while. Then the manager goes into open-ended questions. And this is a really important part of the pre-work that the manager's like, I've seen this performance issue, or I've heard them mention that this person's difficult to work with. I want to check in on this. So your questions are things like, instead of, do you feel like your workload is okay? Or do you feel like your workload is fair? That's a yes or no question, as opposed to what would you change about your workload? That feels like an easy end for the employee to be like, well, I have a lot of feelings about this. But if a manager is like, do you feel like your workload is fair? The employee is going to be like, yes, I don't know. I don't want to upset you. So open-ended questions intentionally are written so that the employee has to answer in a qualitative way. They can't hide in a yes or no to protect themselves. And a good, emotionally available, soft-skilled manager will show up for those answers and be like, oh, interesting. Tell me more. It's really important for a manager to actively listen to those answers and be quiet. Let them keep going. There's always more. It's only the tip of the iceberg. You have a lot of time spent on the open-ended questions. That is the meat of the one-on-one. But you close it out with two more things. Appreciation. Even if you had to give them tough feedback, hey, I really appreciate you being open to my feedback. I know we're going to get you to a place where X is better. Or I hear a lot how much people love working with you. I really want to help you get a more realistic workload. Appreciation, then action items. You said this was a roadblock. I'm going to go remove this for you. I'm going to go talk to this leader and figure out if this blah, 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 blah. And the manager has to follow through on those action items. Otherwise, there won't be psychological safety because the employee's like, that's another one-on-one where they're going to pepper me with questions and then they're not going to follow through. So Those are the steps to a healthy one-on-one. I love that idea of asking the right questions, even including something as simple as, how can I help? Because it just gives you such a different vibe and feeling about this relationship. And you truly feel that there's someone there to support you. And then to ask 
really good questions that get the right response out of people because we all know how awkward it is when someone says, you know, um, what are the biggest challenges right now? And then you have the on the spot, you have to think about like, oh, all my biggest challenges. Totally. Like, do, do you have, can we turn this into a two hour session? And then also to your point, just shut up, right? So you've asked those questions, then give people the time to answer, which again goes back to good coaching behaviors. You're not there to jump in and give advice right away or tell them how they should be doing and give them the time no. to respond. I think that's really beautiful and speaks to, again, the both permission and space that companies need to start giving to managers to be a good manager, because this takes a bit of time to prepare a good one-on-one -on -one, to make sure that, again, you have your dossier fresh on your mind in terms of what is this person going through? What are the last things that we discussed? And how can we continue that trajectory? You need time for that. You need space for that. And that's something that organizations can do. So I think a lot of really practical tips for how companies can become more people first and the role of employee engagement, the role of employee experience, the difference between them, as well as a lot of practical things managers can do. So I think that's super helpful. We'll link to all your profiles in the show notes so people can follow you and learn more as you're constantly sharing uh, really helpful content and doing live events and everything that people can benefit from. To close out, if there was one thing, one thing that you could share to the world, what would it be? You know, I hear this a lot lately. For whatever reason, the universe and TikTok keeps serving this to me. So I'll share it with everyone else because apparently I'm just the messenger. But I keep seeing and hearing if you want to change the world. So we could say in this example, if you want to change the workplace, focus on yourself. Yeah, we all want to go save everyone and give our money and give our time. And how are you doing? The best thing you can do is lead by example take care of yourself, and then everything emanating outward will follow suit. How are you doing? What are you doing to make sure that you're balanced, you're okay? Are you burned out? Are you exhausted? Are you doing too much? You're not going to fix disengagement. You're not going to be a good manager. You're not going to be a good leader if you're not okay. So if you want to change the world, if you want to change the workplace, focus on yourself. Start with yourself. I love it. I have something that I always show in, in onboarding to kind of start to get people to understand that we operate differently than most other companies, like you said, where maybe people have already experienced some trauma, which is around when you take a flight, the one thing that they will always say is that in case of an emergency, put your own oxygen mask on first, because again, if you're incapacitated, if you don't have oxygen, okay. then how can you help the people around you? But the reason why they have to repeat it is that it's in our DNA, it's in our instinct to always help out other people especially if you are, you know, more people oriented HR person or that manager, you know, your instinct is always to help other people. And then you come home late at night and you're totally exhausted and you don't have the energy anymore. That's never going to be a sustainable situation. So I think that's a really great tip to start with yourself, to have some self-compassion, to work on your own wellness, your own well-being, and then change the world. So beautiful notes to end on again we'll link all your profiles in the show notes so people can follow you thank you so much for being here with us today thank you for having me on dan <laughs>